This is Chapter 10 of Sansuk by Detter Mamvid, as read by Sexy Smeagol Uwu, also known as Flower Parish. Author's Notes Meet Adwerodam, Baris, daughter of Alris. Born in 2883 TA, Baris is a rather shy, affectionate girl who loves nothing more than to see people happy. She has rather nondescript brown hair and eyes, but a beautiful and beaming smile. She is particularly close to her uncle Bofer, and can usually be seen joking or singing nearby whenever he is about. She is best friends with Gimris, daughter of Mizim, who is only three years her elder. Baris is a champion child wrangler and babysitter, thanks to being the oldest of twelve. She is particularly fond of ponies and music, and wishes to learn the flute and viol. She can already play the gittern and the sham, and she shows true talent at the fiddle. Her great gift, however, is her voice. Baris has the finest voice to come out of Erebor in centuries, and a range of three and a half octaves, clear, pure tone, and superlative flexibility. Later in life, she will become known as Baris Crystal Tongue. Shut up, Oin, I can't see. Why would you want to? Oin folded his arms and settled back, glowering. The elves around them milled, graceful and serene and remote. All you can see is more bloody elves. Thorin, Balin, Oin, Ori, Nori, Feely, Keely, and Thrain stood beyond the circle of chairs, listening intently. Seeing Bilbo at this great meeting had made Thorin's heart clench painfully. Bilbo's hair had turned white, and his face was finally showing signs of his very great age. He moved slowly and spoke but little. Much of the talk came from Gandalf, who was either ignoring the company or unaware of their presence, and Lord Elrond, the smug, self-satisfied elven git. Bilbo and Frodo both appeared terribly small amongst this council of free peoples and mighty lords, and Thorin wanted to snarl at each one of the damned elves, and especially that arrogant man, who looked at them and turned away with dismissal in their eyes. Gimli looked very uncomfortable, his face set and glowering. Gloin's expression was grim and calm, even though Thrandville's get sat but a few seats away. They were both in formal attire, their gold clasps adorning their beards and their hair unbound. Thorin absently noted that Gimli, once again, had forgotten to brush his. First, Gloin gave news of the mountain. Gandalf hummed in thought, and his eyes narrowed under his bushy brows. Thorin waited impatiently, but no one in the council had anything useful to say at all. Erebor will see war, he sighed to himself. It was always going to happen, said Balin heavily. There is no avoiding it. I had hoped that one of these great lords might give us some hope, Thrain said, eyeing the elves darkly. Too much to ask of a bunch of weed-eaters, I should have known. Twice in a generation, muttered Oin. 
Evil days indeed. Um, excuse me, but quiet please, hissed Ori. They're speaking about the old days. What old days? Feely craned his neck. Oin, get down, I can't see a thing. Move then, I'm fine where I am. Who's Isildur? said Keely, frowning. A king of men, a Numenorian, Ori said scornfully. Don't you know anything? Nori snickered. Oh, and you're so smart, Keely said, sticking out his scruffy chin. So when'd he live? At the end of the Second Age and the beginning of the Third, dimwit, Ori snapped. He was one of the men who established the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor. Arnor? Feely raised an eyebrow. What's Arnor? I cannot believe you, pair, growled Balin. You have both forgotten everything I taught you. Including how to be quiet, said Thrain, and at the sight of their grandfather's stern face, both princes fell silent. There was much talk of the rings of power, and Thorin allowed his mind to wander. He let his gaze drift to Bilbo. The old hobbit was wrapped in a shawl, and he looked small and doll-like on the oversized elven chairs. So what is Arnor? Shut up! Bring forth the ring, Frodo, said Elrond, interrupting Thorin's thoughts, and he whipped his head around to stare at the youngster. Bilbo's ring, that innocuous little thing, landed on a plinth with a disproportionately loud sound. He frowned at it, and then at Frodo, who was retaking his seat with a huge sigh of relief. So it is true, the tall man said, his eyes intent on the ring. And then Thrandwheel's spawn murmured, Sauron's ring, the ring of power, and Thorin felt his knees buckle. The man was still speaking, but Thorin could barely hear him. It wasn't one of the lesser baubles scattered through the world. This little thing that Bilbo had carried for nigh on sixty years was the Ring of Sauron, the ruling ring, the One Ring. Through the high-pitched buzzing in his ears, the thought came that it was no wonder the Black Messenger wanted Bilbo so. The other man, grim and weathered, cloaked in elvish garb, was revealed as the heir of someone or other. Thorin could barely muster the effort to care, still stunned and reeling at what his hobbit had blithely carried and used for so long, to avoid unpleasant visitors of all things. He turned again to look at his hobbit, old and creaking, and knew then what it had done. It had prolonged Bilbo's life. 127 was a vast old age for a hobbit, and yet Bilbo had only begun to show true signs of the passage of time when he left Hobbiton and the ring. The ring. Did I hear that correctly? asked Balin incredulously. Isildur's bane, whispered Ori. Oh, sweet merciful Mahal, grant them strength. Thrain snarled under his breath shifting his weight between his feet and his hands clenching and unclenching. His shoulders bunched with barely restrained violence. Destroy it, Thorin breathed. This foul thing, it is tainted, it must be destroyed. Well, what are we waiting for, growled Gimli, and he drew his father's double-headed battle axe. With a savage cry, he rushed forward and brought the axe down in a blow that Dwalin would be proud of. Thorin's breath caught as Gimli was thrown backwards and a steely ringing sounded in the air, whispering and coaxing. Is he all right? Oin asked anxiously. Is he all right? Gimli pushed himself up onto his elbows and shook his head to clear it. 
His father's axe was shattered. Yeah, the idiot's fine, said Nori. Can't say the same for Gloin's old axe, though. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess, said Elrond. Thorin glared at the damned elf, not a hair out of place on him, not a glimmer of concern, as though Gimli had not just risked himself to be rid of the thing. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. The first man, Boromir, began to explain, with admirable patience, Thorin thought, why this was lunacy. Mordor was no hobbit walking party. Thorin listened with half an ear and carefully watched Gimli haul himself to his feet and brush himself off. He seemed to have taken no lasting damage. Then, of course, Thrandwil's damned son had to speak up. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. Oh, now you wish to help, Thorin snarled, turning on him. His blood was boiling. Bilbo had carried the One Ring. The One Ring had touched his hobbit, altered him. He had crept past elves and spiders and even a dragon with the aid of that foul evil. His heart sought an outlet. It found one. Do you intend to hold your word, or will you turn away again? You elves with your false promises and your false friendships, you cannot be trusted with this thing. I suppose you think you're the one to do it. Gimli leapt back onto his feet, his face thunderous. The room erupted, and Balin groaned, his head falling into his hands. Well, that's torn it, he muttered. Thorin, laddie, you might want to start thinking about doing something about that temper of yours. Say, perhaps holding on to it. I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. The elf raised an elegant eyebrow. Indeed, then may I offer my assistance, Master Dwarf? Gimli's head lowered, and his massive, bull-like shoulders bunched in readiness. Ha! You couldn't fell me if you tried, you skinny twig. You haven't the strength. You could not bear this thing half a mile. The elf squared up to the dwarf, looking coolly down his nose. I would do better than a grasping, greedy mole, stone-headed and stone-hearted, he sneered. Stone-hearted? Gimli bristled. Better that than faithless. Never trust an elf. They will promise friendship and then turn upon you. Fair words can hide foul deeds. I know you, wood elf, and all your fickle kind. Oh, this is going swimmingly, muttered Gloin with heavy sarcasm, sinking down into his chair and covering his eyes. This elf was not as impassive as Threndwheel, and his face grew angry. A dwarf would seize this thing and keep it for his own. Gold is your only love, is it not? Avarice is all you know, you little stone grubber. No doubt it seems natural to you. Fine talk from the son of one who stood armed outside our gates, demanding our people's treasures at siege point, and with no word of apology for my father's imprisonment, Gimli roared. Katuz, suck up as you head in, Biffer shouted. Thorin, I think this might be getting out of hand, mumbled Ori. Treacherous elf, greedy dwarf, deceitful weed-eaters, filthy rock-lovers. The noise was becoming deafening, and Thorin turned to see Gandalf's eyes lingering on him. The old wizard looked profoundly disapproving and afraid. The ring, he said gravely, and Thorin somehow heard him over the uproar. It thrives on such discord. The enemy delights in our mistrust, Thorin son of Thrain. He loves our pride and our conflict. It only adds to his gain. 
Thorin stared at him, and the foul whispering in the air mingled with the din until he could not determine individual sounds from each other. I will take it. The clear voice rang over the clamor, and Thorin blinked. I will take it. Frodo was walking forward into the midst of all the big folk, his face pale and pinched, but resolute. I will take the ring to Mordor. All fell quiet, and faces turned to the hobbit in surprise. The sudden silence felt like a long exhale, and Thorin glanced back at Gimli. He was standing with his lips parted, and he looked somewhat ashamed of himself. Thorin grimaced. That was not an auspicious beginning. I am sorry, Azagif, he murmured. Gimli's shoulders relaxed, and he lifted his chin. That was not my finest moment, he said to himself. Nor mine, said Thorin, and smiled ruefully at his star. Pride was ever my downfall. Learn from me, and do not make it yours. Though, Frodo was saying, and his blue eyes were large and fearful, I do not know the way. Oh, my sweet maker, said Keeley in a rush, and he grabbed onto Feely's jacket. He's so little, isn't he little? So little and brave. He's taller than Bilbo, Feely pointed out, trying to pry Keeley's fingers off. He's littler than me, Keeley said defensively. I give up on you, Feely sighed, and allowed Keeley to continue to gush and grab at his arm. Thorin caught sight of Bilbo's face as Gandalf stepped forward and pledged himself to the young hobbit's protection. He was utterly aghast, thrown back in his chair as though struck. He looked grayish and pale, and he was gazing at Frodo in horror. A rush of realization swept over Thorin. Frodo is the son of your heart, he said blankly. Frodo, lad, Bilbo managed, and his hands gripped his shawl tightly. Oh, Frodo, lad, what have I done to you? His voice rose sharply and plaintively, and his eyes were brimming with fear for the boy. What have I done to you? Thorin, said Thrain, in a low voice, a word. His father drew him aside and muttered, They cannot harm Bilbo here in Rivendell. Elrond's power keeps this land safe. But Frodo is a Baggins, and a hobbit from the Shire. They will be hunting him the minute he steps foot beyond the valley. After a moment, Thorin nodded curtly. This mission is too important. You know what we must do, son, Thrain said, and his powerful hands landed on Thorin's head in blessing and reassurance. Go, do it. He took a breath and turned back to his burglar. Bilbo, Thorin said, and knelt before the hobbit, keeping his eyes on the wrinkled old face. Bilbo. Oh, please, Bilbo whimpered, and Thorin could not stand it a minute longer. We will protect him for you, he promised. I vowed to look after you, and those you love. I will watch over him, I swear it. Please, Iluvatar, Mahal, Kementari, protect him, Bilbo whispered. Elbereth Gothoniel, watch over him. Oh, forgive me, forgive me. I swear it, Thorin vowed, and lifted a finger to ghost over the lines of Bilbo's face. Then he stood and strode over to Gimli. Gimli, Inudoy, he said, his voice low and dark and full of determination. You know what must be done. This is the battle of our age, and you shall be our champion. Go, son of my heart, will you protect the son of his?
Gimli stood, planting his feet as a dwarf should. And my axe, he said loudly, and he drew his father's walking axe and glared up at the elf. The elf, for his part, ignored him with aloof disdain. The man of Gondor also chose to stand with them, and Frodo looked achingly small amongst them. And then, hobbits were scurrying out of the bushes to insist on going as well, and Biffer exploded into howls of laughter. They can't be serious, Nori said, his braided eyebrows rising almost to his hairline. Four hobbits? Well, we had one, it worked for us, said Oin, shrugging. Right, yeah, one was a good number. One was plenty of hobbit in my opinion. Four is going to mean a lot of pocket handkerchiefs is all I'm saying. I don't think Peregrine Took has used a handkerchief in his life, said Thorin dryly, watching as the youngest of the hobbits made a fool of himself. Again. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring, announced Elrond, and Thorin resisted the urge to roll his eyes. A grandiose name for nine walkers. Simply the company of Frodo Baggins would have sufficed. This seemed to signify the end of the council. Many of the great lords stayed to talk between themselves in quiet voices. Frodo helped Bilbo down from his too high chair, and Thorin watched them leave with worried eyes. Bilbo seemed nearly transparent with grief and horror, his face even older than before. Then he heard Gimli's voice rumble. Master Elf, if I may. He turned to see the son of Threndwheel look down his nose at Gimli, his face expressionless, but his eyes flashing with irritation. Dwarf, what have you to say? Gimli's jaw tensed, but he did not rise to the bait. I wish to apologize. My words were hasty and ill-chosen. I would not set out together on such a quest with them still between us. Thorin felt his mouth drop open. Kind, I, and forgiving. His thoughts from long ago whispered. The elf looked puzzled and suspicious. I see. In which case, I also rescind my words and offer you my apologies. Your name? Gimli, son of Gloin, Gimli said, offering the barest minimum of a bow. Thorin couldn't help but note that he had omitted the customary greeting. Legolas Thrandwillian, the elf said, inclining his head only slightly. Thorin glowered at him. That elf had held him at arrow point and threatened his life. How dare Gimli offer his apologies to the creature? Well met, elf, said Gimli, ignoring the name. The elf's lips curled in distaste. Obviously not. Gimli's beard twitched, as though he was also suppressing a sneer. Well, at least there's room for improvement, I. Fries found Thorin in his smithy much later. He had begun to work on an iron skillet, and it had been going well. He had cast the initial shape, and though the pig iron was not as noble a metal as he normally shaped, he found it fluid to work with and it bent to his will easily. He turned the half-finished work over in his hands. Here, the pan, where a hobbit might cook bacon or tomatoes or eggs or mushrooms or those little flat cakes that Frodo liked so much. Here, the handle, where a hobbit's hands would grip sure and steady and confident. Possibly a wooden handle to reduce the conductivity of heat. Hobbit hands were nimble and soft. Here, a divot in the rim for pouring. And here, a maker's mark. Thorin, son of Thrain. Here, around the sides, a wrought pattern of dwarvish knotwork, each knot surmounted with hobbitish flowers. Are you all right? She asked softly, sitting beside him. He grunted. 
She took the skillet and turned it, eyeing his guide marks and the decorations around the sides. Oh, Thorin, she sighed. Hobbits have a language for their flowers, much as we have for our gems, he said, and his voice was deep and distant even to himself. What are they? she asked. He paused, and then he took her hand and guided it over one of the flowers. Berry rose, he said, and rain flowers. What do they mean? He smiled and did not answer. Fries put the pan aside and turned his hand over. There was a burn from the casting process on the heel of his palm, and she made a tch sound under her breath. I am fine, he said, taking his hand back. I am well. That I don't doubt, she said, and looked up at him. He had gained his father's height, and he towered over her. I worry. I'm your mother. It's my privilege to do so. I'm older than you, he reminded her, and she arched one wheat-blonde eyebrow. You are still my son, and I know you, my surly little prince. Talk to me. He was silent for a moment. Then he said, Bilbo carried the one ring. He carried it for sixty years. I have watched over him all this time, and I never... Her blue eyes, the same hue and shape as his own, softened. Then she pulled his head down and kissed him on the brow. You are not responsible, Thorin, she said. You are not responsible for every bad thing that has happened in this world. The ring has its own will, and it chose your hobbit. That he has kept his own heart and his own mind speaks very highly of him. He never would have found it if I hadn't... Oh, for Mahal's sake, she said, frustrated love passing over her face. Do you know how hard it is to watch you constantly flay yourself for things that are not your fault? You have made mistakes, certainly, but this is not yours to claim. Gandalf was the one who chose Bilbo Baggins, or have you forgotten? Thorin's breath paused on an exhale. I thought so, she said. Please, Thorin, stop this. You are a good soul and a mighty heart. Stop tearing yourself apart with remorse. But, Ahmad, I... Thorin didn't know what to say, and his words came out strangled and half-growled. I don't... I never knew that... She put her fingers over his mouth, and then let them card into his cropped beard, combing gently. I saw my son again at that meeting. I saw my brave, valiant, determined boy, the dwarf who led a forgotten people to safety, rallied a hopeless battle, and stared down two armies with nothing more than the strength of his will. Don't lose yourself again in your guilt, dear one. Don't take on the burdens that are others to bear. No one is strong enough for that. He blinked, and then let his head fall forward against her shoulder, and let out a long, shuddering breath. Her arms wrapped as far as they could around his shoulders, and he stayed there for a long moment, breathing in the scent that spoke of safety, of love, and home. Then he straightened and pressed their brows together. Well then, he said, back to work. She smiled. Here now, Gimli, Gloin said, his gruff voice cracking. Here's the tinderbox, and here's my old pipe. Hobbits grow the finest pipeweed in the world, and they're not stingy with it. I would be cruel indeed to deny you the chance to taste it. Ugh, look at you, boy. Your braids are crooked. Did you tie them with your eyes closed? Did you even brush them? Gimli stood still and allowed Gloin to unravel one plate, his old, gnarled fingers moving in the patterns of a lifetime. 
I doubt any will care whether I have brushed my hair or not, Dad, Gimli said. Well, I care, and so would your mother, Gloin said fiercely. You're representing the pride of our people now, son. You should look as a dwarf lord should. All these tall folk and elves, they cannot tell whether I am a dwarf lord or a tinker, Gimli grunted, lifting his chin so that his father could gather more of his thick beard into the braid. Why I need wear my clasps and braids for such an ignorant lot. Ignorant they may be, but they are our allies, Gloin said, tugging sharply on the braid he was weaving. Mahal knows they can't even tell a broad beam from a stiff beard, but you will comport yourself as benefits my son and a dwarf of Durin's line. Remember, what you do here not only reflects upon you, but upon all dwarves everywhere. Gimli sighed and allowed his father to unravel the other braid. Yes, Dad. Gloin huffed. When you say yes, Dad, in that tone of voice, I half believe you are a lad of sixty again, and not a duero of more than twice that age. Gimli reached out and touched the onyx and gold beads caught in the snow-white fall of Gloin's hair. I feel like a lad of sixty. I am but one dwarf, Dad. I cannot represent all dwarves. It is too much to ask. I... Ach, sh you'll do fine, Gloin said, and he tied off the second braid and stood back. There, oh, Nidoya. Gimli lifted his head, his newly done braids sliding over his broad and powerful chest. He remained still, letting his father look his fill. Then, Gloin leaned forward and clasped Gimli's face in his hands, and spoke a quiet word. Gimli closed his eyes and exhaled slowly. Watching, Thorin was profoundly shaken. He had heard that word. He was almost certain that he had just heard the true and secret name of Gimli, son of Gloin. Gloin pressed their heads together for a moment, and then he kissed his son's brow gently. Remember who you are, stay as safe as you can, protect the ring-bearer, keep an eye on that elf, and don't run into any bloody trolls or any of that nonsense. I have letters, Gimli said, reaching into his brigandine and fishing out a bundle of papers. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> one for Mum, and one for Gimris and Bofur, and one for Gamish. That one, the one in the blue paper, is for Aunt Dees. There's also a note for Dory, and another for Bomber and Alris, and the last is for Dwalin, Orla, and their lads. I have a letter to be sent to Dane, too, if I... Gloin took them, and then he wrapped Gimli in a bear hug. I love you, boy, he said, low and fervent. I am so proud of you. So, so proud of you. Gimli buried his face in Gloin's beautiful white beard and clung to his father with all of his enormous strength. I love you too, Adad. Don't forget to contact us when you can, Gloin said against Gimli's hair. Protect that hobbit with all you have. He's the only hope for all our peoples. Gimli nodded against Gloin's beard, forcing himself to let go and stand back. Well, he said, and then he cleared his throat. <clears throat> we leave within the hour, I should... I... Gloin smiled and nodded. Go, Azagal Bokul. Go on and help save the world. Gimli shouldered his pack, gripped his father's walking axe, slipped the throwing axes and his decorated bearded axe into his leather harness, clapped his helm on his head and took one last, anguished look at his father, 
and tore himself away. Gloin stared at the empty, open door for the space of two heartbeats, before sinking down onto the too-high bed. Thorin hesitated, and then he sat down beside his cousin. The silence left behind in Gimli's wake washed over them. So who's the man? asked Oin, scratching at his stomach as he, Ori, and Thorin trudged along behind the trailing hobbits. Which one? said Ori. This one. Either one. I wasn't listening, really. The most important council in centuries, and you weren't listening? Too many elves. Ori sighed and pursed his lips. The one with the horn is Boromir, son of the steward of Gondor. The one with the long stride is Aragorn, and he's the heir of Isildur. Oh. Oin squinted up at them. Poor things. Barely a scruff between them. The Gondor one shows a bit of promise, but the Isildur one's as bad as Keeley. How do they tell each other what they do and who they are without a beard to braid? Ori shrugged. Perhaps they ask? Sounds a bit dull. Gimli walked behind Aragorn in silence, his eyes darting around at the unfamiliar trees and his hand on the haft of his axe. The helm Dwalin had given him was on his head, and his heavy boots stumped rhythmically against the crackling leaves underfoot. The men also walked heavily, and Thorin looked back at where the hobbits followed, nearly noiseless as they pattered barefoot through the leaves. The elf was ranging ahead. His soft shoes made very little noise, though he was not as eerily silent as the hobbits. His eyes were narrowed as he peered through the wood, and on occasion he swung into the branches to gain a higher vantage point. They slept in the middle of the day and moved throughout the night, relying on daylight to keep the sleepers safe from orcs. Upon the second day, they camped in the western lee of a hill to avoid any prying eyes from the east. It was a good thing Gimli had brought his father's flint, as Gandalf disappeared shortly after they had made camp. "'Where's he off to?' asked Pippin, frowning. "'A funny time to go sightseeing.' "'My father said Gandalf comes and goes as he will,' Gimli said, and smiled at the little hobbit as the tinder caught. Not to worry, Master Peregrine. You have myself and Boromir and Aragorn to protect you. And Legolas, added Aragorn, his eyes gleaming with mirth. Do you forget Legolas, Master Gimli? Gimli grunted and did not answer, piling leaves and twigs around his nascent fire. Oh, Gimli, Thorin said, and rubbed his face with one hand, trying to suppress a smile. I have been influencing you for far too long. Now, Mr. Frodo, sir, Sam was saying, handing over a dried strip of meat. It's not exactly a fry-up, but it'll tide us over until Mr. Gimli's got that fire up and going. It's ready when you are, Master Samwise, said Gimli, stepping back to show the neat little fire pit with its merry blaze. Now that's a thing, Sam scratched his head. I'm no stranger to light and fires myself, but that took no time at all. Why, it felt as though I'd barely blinked. Fire has ever been a good servant to the dwarves, Gimli said, and tugged off his heavy gloves to warm his hands by his fire. Here, Mr. Frodo, get yourself a bit closer. That wind is not playing around, Sam said, and then turned to where Merry and Pippin were digging through his discarded pack. And you two, get out of there. I don't want to have to explain to Strider why we ran out of food, not two days out of Rivendell. Merry looked somewhat ashamed, but Pippin looked completely unconcerned. Well, I won't be bothered, he said cheerfully. 
I'll have a full stomach, and there's very little that's disagreeable about that. Gimli chuckled. My father once told me that there were seven meals a day for hobbits. Is it true? Pippin's eyes lit up, and he sat down opposite Gimli, sticking his thumbs into his waistcoat in an important manner. Now, there are two schools of thought on that, he said, nodding solemnly. Some, the more enlightened, believe that there should be upwards of seven meals. Why, what if you get peckish between second breakfast and eleven seas? What if you wake up in the middle of the night with turkey sandwiches on your mind? What if supper was not really satisfying the first time around, so you want to give it another chance? Enough, enough, Gimli laughed. I see how it is. The enlightened amongst hobbits would advocate eating all through the day and most of the night, if it were at all practical. Pippin beamed, pleased to have made the dwarf laugh. Absolutely. The elf's head had turned at Gimli's deep, booming laugh, and a tiny crease had formed between his dark brows. How many meals do dwarves have, then? Are they like men, or are they more sensible about matters? Asked Sam, putting his pan down on the flames. Gimli leaned back, his eyes twinkling. I'm sure you'd think us very foolish indeed, Master Gamgee. We normally have only two or three meals a day, though we may easily go without. Two or three? Mary looked aghast. And Bilbo traveled all that way with, oh, the poor old hobbit. We didn't starve him, Thorin grumbled, and behind him, Oin made a noise of indignant protest. How on earth do you keep going on so little? Pippin said, scooting closer to the fire and staring at Gimli with wide eyes. I'm sure I'd waste away to simply nothing. Two or three or nothing. Shameful is what it is, Sam declared, waving his spoon about. Gimli held up his great hands and laughed. Peace, peace. It is what I need, no more. If you fed me like a hobbit, I'd soon be as round as I am tall. I can't believe you're as strong as you are, said Mary, prodding at Gimli's prodigious arms. Why, I'd disappear completely. Isn't natural, Sam grumbled, his spoon jabbing at his sizzling pan. It's perfectly natural for a dwarf, which is what I am, said Gimli, grinning at the young hobbits. I'll keep to what a dwarf knows and leave all the expertise in eating to hobbits, where it obviously belongs. And what does a dwarf know, then? Pippin, Pippin said eagerly, and he tipped his head, gazing at Gimli with avid curiosity. Pippin, don't be rude, Mary said, tugging at his cousin's jacket and raising his eyebrows meaningfully. Sorry, Mr. Gimli, it's just that we've never met a dwarf, and Pippin here, he dug an elbow into Pippin's side, has absolutely no sense of the appropriate. Oh, and you do, of course, Sam muttered beneath his breath. Frodo smiled faintly. No offense taken, Master Mary, Gimli said, leaning back and lighting his pipe. I don't mind at all. There's a lot of lies spread about our folk, and Gimli sent a dark look over at the elf, and it's good to get the chance to combat him. The elf was startled by the sudden attention, and his eyes snapped from the little gathering to the forest once more. Well now, Gimli mused, puffing on his pipe. What a dwarf knows. What a dwarf knows. Rocks and stones, no doubt, said the elf dismissively, and Gimli raised an eyebrow. I, rocks and stones, do you expect me to be offended? The elf remained silent. Rocks and stones are not dead, Master Elf, Gimli continued. Each has their own song, and we can feel it beneath our feet and under our fingers. Everything yearns. 
Everything has beauty inside it, and it longs to be let free. The meanest of stones struggles to become, and we cannot help but sense it. Each dwarf is drawn to a craft, and we find beauty and wisdom in the work of hands and minds. We are taught our history early, and the songs and chants of our people. Each clan has their own ancient traditions, you know. We love music well, and dance. My grandmother was a famous axe dancer. She could keep four spinning at one time. My father's folk, the Longbeards, are more likely to mine gold or iron, but the Stiffbeards love silver best and make many cunning things from it. Do you have a craft? asked Boromir, interested despite himself. My apologies, but I have never heard one of your secretive race speaking so openly before. Gimli waved the apology away. No, I have not yet found that which makes my hands sing, he said easily. I'm still in the prime of my years, however. Plenty of time yet. How old are you, Master Dwarf? Aragorn asked. Oh, I turned 139 a few months ago, said Gimli, blowing a smoke ring. Aragorn looked taken aback. And here I thought myself amongst the oldest of our party. It seems that between you and Legolas and Gandalf, I am a mere child. I expect we all look like children to those two, Gimli said. Bilbo once told me of a language, Frodo said. Gimli's eyes narrowed. Aye, there is a language passed down from our maker. He said he wasn't supposed to know, Frodo said, and he smiled faintly. You know Bilbo. I met him once when I was but a lad, Gimli said, and snorted. It doesn't surprise me that he knows of Kuzdul. Aye, that's the name of it. We alone of all speaking peoples did not learn our tongue from the elves, but from the great maker himself. It is sacred, and I will not speak more about it. Your maker, said Mary artlessly. You mean someone makes dwarves? Is that a craft? Gimli started, and then he laughed long and loud. Ha ha, if it is a craft, then the best craftswoman I know is Alris, daughter of Garys. She has twelve children, a remarkable feat amongst dwarves. Twelve is a commonplace enough number in the Shire, shrugged Pippin. My mother was a Banks, you know, and she was the third of eight. We do not increase quickly, Gimli said, still chuckling. Ah, me, I must tell Alris and Bomber when next I see them. Bomber's wife, Frodo said, his eyes flickering with recognition. Bilbo told me about him. He was one of the company. Indeed he was. So who made dwarves, if not lady dwarves, pressed Mary. Dwerodams, Gimli corrected, and the three younger hobbits repeated the new words slowly. They were not intended, said Legolas. Gimli froze. And then he said, carefully, not by the one who made all else. No, we were created by other hands. Dwarves were never meant to be, Legolas said, his elven eyes flashing. They mar the Song of Arda with their discordant notes. Thorin growled, and Oin's hands clenched. No, said Ori softly. Don't influence him. They must be a fellowship, and that can't happen if Gimli loses his temper every two seconds. Gimli can lose his temper without any help from me, Thorin retorted, glaring at the elf. We are an ancient race, made by Mahal in the days before elves awoke, said Gimli stiffly. He longed for companionship, and so he made creatures other than himself and taught them to speak. The one who made all else discovered us, and told Mahal that his creatures were not wanted. And so we are not wanted, not understood, forever apart from the other races of the world. 
Sam's mouth dropped open. Now that's cruel, plain cruel, he muttered. "'Tis the way of things,' Gimli said, and tapped the embers from his pipe on his heavy boot. "'We will be granted a place in the music at the end of all things, for so we were promised. But until then, we are not wanted, and we know it.' He looked up at the elf defiantly. "'There are some who delight in reminding us. Still, what are we to do about it? Cease to exist? No. All things yearn to become.' Even the meanest of stones strives, and dwarves know it better than any. Does it ever make you angry? asked Frodo quietly. Gimli nodded his bright head. Aye, sometimes, but what use is anger? We were made strong to endure, and so we do. The elf looked troubled for a moment. Then he stood and said, I will scout this area. Do that, grunted Gimli, and then he rolled into his blankets. In two to three seconds, he was snoring. He didn't wait for supper, Sam complained. That was well said, murmured Ori. He spoke of Mahal, said Oin, shaking his head. Shouldn't have done that. The little hobbits were curious, said Thorin. He seems fond of them. Their curiosity does no harm. That damned elf is going to be trouble, Oin predicted. Thorin sighed. I fear you are all too correct, he said, glaring at the trees where the elf had disappeared. Before the stars released him, he stopped it on Bilbo. The old hobbit was seated in a huge chair, far too large for him, and his feet swung above the floor. He had a blanket over his knees, and his head was nodding on his chest. Hello, my dear, Thorin said softly, crouched down before him. They are well on their way, the hobbits grow fond of Gimli, and the men are strong and valiant. Your son is safe. Bilbo's head nodded lower, and a faint expression of grief flickered over his face. You look so tired, my Idrizib, he said, with as much tenderness as he could muster. Thorin was not good at expressing his care, and the words did not come easily. But for Bilbo, he would try. You should make your way to bed— I have them. I will not fail you. He lifted his hand and carefully rested it above Bilbo's. Only a breath of air was between the warm, living, wrinkled flesh of the hobbit and Thorin's cold, ghostly palm, forever caught in the vigor of his prime. His hand was so much broader and stronger than Bilbo's, and closing his eyes, he imagined that he could feel the thin and papery skin, the soft, buttery texture. So old, my Bilbo he said, and looked up into the hobbit's drowsing face. I never thought to wonder why you lived on and on and on. I only thought to curse the fate that kept you from me for so long. He lifted his other hand and allowed it to drift through the wispy white spiderweb of Bilbo's hair. I am glad you grew old, he said in a low voice. Whatever the reason, I am glad one of us did. Still, I find that I hate that you grew old without me. Would you laugh at my gray beard, I wonder? Would we barricade ourselves against each winter, wrapping ourselves in your quilts and complaining about our bones? Would we grow more alike as time passed, my mannerisms becoming yours, your words becoming mine? Bilbo's lips moved, and Thorin sighed soundlessly. Fruitless to wonder. Still, how I wish, Master Burglar. How I wish. Bilbo mumbled under his breath for a moment, and then the sounds became words. 
I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago, and people who will see a world that I shall never know. I sit beside the fire and think of words I never said, of promises and wishes made all locked up in my head. I sit beside the fire and think I hear him now and then, but still I wait to hear that knock upon my door again. End of chapter 10. untasted wells he stooped and looked in mirror mirror and saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadows of his head notes Rainflower means, I love you back, I must atone for my sins, I will never forget you. And Berry Rose, choose your destiny, I won't give up my promise, I'll love you forever. Isildur, his brother Anarion, and his father Elendil were all Numenorians who remained friendly with the elves and were therefore called the Faithful. These people fled Numenor with the seedling of the white tree before it was swallowed by the sea for the arrogance, corruption, and pride of its rulers, misled and lied to by Sauron. Once back in Middle-earth, Elendil became High King of Gondor and Arnor, Gondor in the south, Arnor in the north. Isildur and Anarion governed Gondor for their father while he ruled the Northern Kingdom. Isildur created a city, Minas Ithil, now Minas Morgul, and Anarion built another, Minas Arnor, now Minas Tirith. They kept in touch using a palantir they had brought from Numenor. Minas Ithil was captured by Sauron's forces in 3429, Second Age, and then the last alliance was formed. Arnor. The vast kingdom of the north that was established by Elendil fell apart in the early centuries of the Third Age due to civil wars. The roads remained, and some folk histories, the hobbits recalled that their thanes wore allegiance to the High King in the north, but little of that great kingdom survives, apart from ruins such as watchtowers. The first two stanzas of the poem at the end are Tolkien's, the last two are the author's. <laughs> 